0: it's thursday february 20th i'm oscar ramirez in los angeles and this is the daily dive meth is back and it's uglier than ever while the opioid crisis has had its grip on the country for some time now on the streets of ohio and kentucky meth is making a resurgence because of its cheap price increased purity and opioid users looking for alternatives and while communities grapple with how to treat these epidemics, we still must treat the underlying problem of addiction. Terry Demio, reporter at the Cincinnati Enquirer, joins us for the latest drug problem. Next, Michael Bloomberg is changing the game on how his campaign is advertising. The latest effort is recruiting deputy digital organizers at a cost of $2,500 a month to post pro Bloomberg messages on their personal social media accounts, but also send text to everyone in their contacts list. Georgia Wells reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how they are blurring the lines between traditional campaign organizing and the distribution of sponsored content. Finally, coronavirus may be on the brink of a global pandemic. As numbers continue to get worse in mainland China, the virus is also spreading in other countries. Many countries have begun to issue travel restrictions, impose quarantines, and also trace the contacts of people with known infections. Marisa Fernandez, reporter at Axios, joins us for how COVID-19 keeps spreading. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: Our area was kind of a ground zero for the opioid heroin fentanyl epidemic. So now we have this meth coming in and a lot of the people whom I'm familiar with who use drugs have told me that they perceived it to be safer and that they're just trying to be a little bit safer.
0: Joining us now is Terry Demio, reporter at the Cincinnati Inquirer. Thanks for joining us, Terry. Thank you. We're going to be talking about another drug epidemic forming in uh, Ohio and Kentucky. A lot of people are saying this is another arm of the opioid crisis, meth. Meth is back and it's flooding the streets there, and it's getting worse than it has been in the past. Terry, tell us a little bit about why meth is flooding back into the streets now.
1: So I have covered the opioid epidemic almost exclusively for several years now. And with fentanyl, And carfentanil, we've obviously had escalating deaths. And one of the responses has been from the Mexican cartels to add meth to what they're dispersing in our area. Our area was kind of a ground zero for the opioid, heroin, fentanyl epidemic. So now we have this meth coming in and a lot of the people whom I'm familiar with who use drugs have told me that they perceived it to be safer and that they're just trying to be a
0: little bit safer. They might think it's safer and an alternative to opioids, maybe not the truest of things, but because you're Correct. still you're still putting your body through the rigors of all this drug and all that stuff. From your article you had noted that there's a 23 drug task forces, including northern Kentucky, that's funded through the Ohio High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area Agency. And they saw a 1,600% jump in meth seized from 2015 to 2019. That is a heck of a lot of meth that has been flooded in there.
1: It's Huge. And the difference is when it's coming from Mexico, not only might it be tainted with fentanyl, although that can happen here as well, it is much purer. It's much more potent. It used to be that the kind of semi rural areas in the Midwest were inundated with meth that people made themselves in these sheds and wherever they could make them. That was. Dangerous because they're potentially explosive, but that drug was much less pure and much less dangerous than is the meth of today.
0: Yeah, and it's a lot cheaper now too. They noted a gram of meth can go for as little as four fifty per gram, you know, and up to $25 a twenty five dollars gram. That's still a lot cheaper, but a lot of people point to. The real problem is not necessarily each individual drug, but addiction. The U.S. has this addiction crisis, and I was talking about how it goes from an extension of the opioid crisis. That's how people are describing this. You go from opioid pain pills to heroin to opioid fentanyls and then to these stimulants, which is meth.
1: That's absolutely right. And the doctor-certified addiction specialist in northern Kentucky, whom I quoted, said something to the effect, I don't have the exact quote in my head, but we just keep moving like locusts, like a herd of locusts from one drug to the next to try to save individuals from this drug. And no doubt we need to try to do that. But what we really need to do is address addiction as a whole. And, you know, a couple of years ago when Sentinel started moving in, all eyes went to that. And it is true, we had ridiculous numbers of people just overdosing in the street. It was horrific. And then we got a lot more Narcan and a lot more accessibility to Narcan. So people started using it and learning how to use it. And it was available, but you can't just leave it at that, reviving someone. You need to treat the addiction and that's where we
0: need to be. And that's part of one of the difficulties with treating meth addiction or, you know, people that are you know trying other things. It's treated differently than the opioid crisis. There's no medication assisted treatment for meth you got to go about it a different way. And as you mentioned, go back to the source. You have to treat the source of addiction. Why are you using? Why are you doing all of this?
1: That makes it much more difficult for those whose brains have basically been kind of hijacked by meth. It's hard to get to that source and hard to be able to maintain stability so that you can learn the skills that will help you maintain sobriety. MAT, Vivitrol, Methadone, Suboxone, did just that and does just that it helps the individual stabilize not have that immense craving need perceived need for the drug so then they're much more able to try out and you know work with behavior changes
0: so have you seen officials approach this now in a different way now that they're seeing the numbers change and usage and deaths rise from meth use? Have you seen officials do anything to try to counteract that?
1: The officials aren't quite there in my view. I mean, they care it's definitely way more involved than they were pre-heroin, but it is definitely the treatment community that is responding better, I think. And there's still a search for What will best help with addiction as a whole? As far as the officials, we had U.S. Senator Rob Portman help push through a bill that allows states to use opioid money now for stimulant addiction help. But it needs to be for any addiction. That's what I'm trying to say.
0: Terry Demio, reporter at the Cincinnati Enquirer. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much. It was nice to be here
0: i do know how to attack those issues i do know how to pull people together and get the resources that your mayor and that your city council and your legislature and governor are going to need to make this city even better that's what i do well i have a, um, put teams together and know how to marshal resources joining us now is georgia wells tech reporter at the wall street journal thanks for joining us georgia thanks for having me Michael Bloomberg has been in the race for the Democratic nomination for president less than a lot of his other counterparts, but he's risen in the polls. He's spending, I think, more advertising dollars than everybody else in the race right now combined. So Michael Bloomberg has name recognition in that sense of it. But for now, there's a lot of scrutiny on the way he's running his campaign There was already a story previously about how he was using social media influencers to get the word out, uh, to post funny memes about him, things like that. But right now, he's actually going to be bankrolling a social media army, if you want to call it, to push out his message. This is all happening ahead of the California primary on March 3rd. Super Tuesday, they call it, because there's a lot of other states involved also. But a lot of people are saying that he's blurring the lines between traditional campaign organizing and the distribution of sponsored content over social media. Georgia, tell us what his new tactic is.
2: The Bloomberg campaign is hiring hundreds of people across the state of California, and it's paying them to reach out to all their contacts on their phone and also post on social media messages that the campaign approves of about Michael Bloomberg.
0: And they're getting paid a pretty hefty sum. I think it's $2,500 per month to promote Bloomberg. And what's
2: interesting here is in the brand retail world, we've seen a lot of rules come down about how you need to label posts when someone's getting paid to post it. But for the political landscape, this is kind of the Wild West. Like the folks who are getting paid to do it, some of them on their social media handles, they're mentioning that they're doing some work for the campaign. But when they're texting their friends, there's no disclosure that like, by the way, I'm also getting paid to send these messages.
0: So how does this outreach look like? If somebody gets hired by the Bloomberg campaign, and then they're supposed to post these links and different things like that to their own social media handles, not necessarily something that is a Bloomberg account. They're posting it to their own personal handles.
2: That's the key distinction of what's happening here. They're using an app called Outvote, and on that app, they see these kind of pre-selected approved messages, and they'll often link to either press releases or news stories about Bloomberg or other candidates. And they select which messages and who to send them to. And so if you're on the receiving end of it, it looks like your buddy Jeff just messaged you something that he composed, like, this is why I support Bloomberg, and here's a link to something you should check out. But there's no hashtag or no indication that he did it through an app and he's receiving money for it.
0: And then the app also tracks, obviously, the click-throughs and all that stuff, because uh, the campaign needs to keep track of the reach of the effort. To staff this whole thing, the campaign is hiring more than 500 what they're calling deputy digital organizers, although I think they changed the name more recently.
2: So they're now calling them deputy field organizers. I'm not aware of exactly the level of data that the campaign receives from the app, but I know, for example, the users can upload information about certain people that they've tried to do outreach to and kind of add notes about like, You know, I contacted this person. I think they are a likely voter or notes like those.
0: People from the Bloomberg campaign are really calling this the future of political organizing. And every cycle, we see something different, something new, a new way to use social media. And this is kind of that next step. But it's kind of blurring the lines of the traditional models and this new model, because we don't know, you know, you're not explicitly saying this is sponsored content. How do the social media platforms handle this type of usage of their platform?
2: The social media companies, as well as regulators, haven't quite caught up. Facebook, for example, their rules in the past were largely around political advertising and then also around influencer marketing, but it treated them as largely separate. And so after the New York Times reported last week about the Bloomberg campaign hiring influencers, Facebook has now started to come up with rules around labeling. But so I'm really curious to see how these rules evolve.
0: For their part, the Bloomberg campaign doesn't necessarily think that these posts need to be labeled as such, as ads or anything like that. They just see it as a new form of political organizing rather than paid content. Yeah, exactly. The
2: folks I spoke with over there kind of actually described it as sort of an obvious evolution that if you think of the traditional political organizer kind of doing phone banking or going door to door and talking with neighbors or something, their position is sort of why wouldn't people then kind of use their social networks and the trust and credibility they have there to reach people where they're hanging out. And so I think that that's a really interesting point. Like, of course, people are going to want to use their social networks. I think also interesting is to see whether the regulators will have anything to say about that.
0: Georgia Wells, tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
3: We still have almost 75,000 cases in mainland China, but there are some other countries nearby that are seeing a rise in numbers and just the handful of cases that we had probably mentioned maybe even just a month ago.
0: Joining us now is Marisa Fernandez, reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Marisa. Thanks so much. The outbreak of coronavirus just keeps getting worse and worse every day. I mean, every day there's a new update. So we try to bring you as much of it as we can here on the podcast, although it's obviously a little slower than most breaking news. But a lot of people, a lot of experts are worried that we could be at the brink of a global pandemic. In China, it's an epidemic for sure. It's spreading like crazy. But a pandemic, for that to happen, you know, something needs to be spreading across multiple continents or large parts of different countries. And we're not there just yet, but it could be on the horizon. Marisa, tell us about some of the latest numbers that we know, deaths that have happened, how many infections we have so far.
3: There's a lot of moving parts to this. We have economic implications. We have companies coming out with, you know, different earnings reports in terms of how that's going to affect them. And then we also have the medicinal part of it in terms of, you know, breakaways and what we want to know about what this virus is doing, how it's moving, how it's affecting people. And right now, China is definitely still the biggest target for this. We still have almost 75,000 cases in mainland China, but there are some other countries nearby that are seeing a rise in numbers and just the handful of cases that we had probably mentioned maybe even just a month ago. So Right now, we are seeing more countries have more cases. And like you said, that could perfect storm to um, revisit that conversation of whether or not we are having a
0: pandemic. Most people, about 80 percent who catch this, experience mild symptoms. But what else do we know? How are people experiencing this? People who are usually
3: dying are people who have pre existing conditions and are usually of an older population. And so it's usually a combination with something that makes them more ill. And then mostly 80% of the people experience mild symptoms. And those symptoms can include a fever, respiratory symptoms, coughing, stuff like that that seems, we like to say, you know, flu like symptoms.
0: Breaking that down a little further, 14% get uh, something a little more severe, like pneumonia type Mm -hmm. stuff, and 5% come down with critical diseases like sepsis, organ failures, respiratory failures, and and then maybe closer to about 2% is really where the death rate is. What's been going on with regard to vaccines? I know I had been reading a little bit. I know there Mm -hmm. was a a new company. It was one of the largest companies in the world dedicated to vaccines who's getting in the race to help make something. What do we know about Mm -hmm. that?
3: So the Department of Homeland Security has kind of like an arm, essentially, dedicated to this kind of stuff. And the company is called Sinofi Pasteur, and it entered the race we like to say to develop a vaccine. There are several biotech companies and a couple other companies that are really diving into this. What we've reported on the past though, it's extremely important to develop a vaccine, especially if this is the type of virus that is seasonal. We don't know this, but the thing about vaccines is that it's more of a long-term solution. It's not necessarily something that we can nail down right away. Experts usually like to say, give it a year maybe even two or three for it to come out on the market. But there are tons of companies dedicated to trying to fix this. And there are also the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation donated up to $100 million with the World Health Organization to try and develop vaccine research and public health initiatives.
0: You had mentioned a little earlier the Diamond Princess cruise ship that was in Japan. They just began on Wednesday. The release of hundreds of people that were deemed healthy after being quarantined on there for two weeks. It's going to take a few days just because there's so many people. There was 100 plus passengers from America who have to face a two week quarantine again once they get home. I think they lifted some people out of there and they kind of started a new quarantine. There had been a man that we talked to for the podcast. His name was Carl Goldman who had it, didn't have it yet, but we just found out that now he became infected with coronavirus. There was a lot mm-hmm. of health experts that were saying, I guess you have to quarantine them They're on the ship, but it's more of an incubator that's what's happening there. And that seems kind of what happened. So yeah, I mean, it's just so fast moving. And, and as you mentioned, even with the vaccine, it's gonna take a long time for that. This is just that ongoing mm-hmm. thing, but it seems like coronavirus is here to stay already.
3: What's important to stress here is that when you talk to health officials, are ARM um, at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the U.S. and then, you know, China and other health officials. A lot of what they're trying to do right now is public health measures because there is no medicine or technological advances to help stop the spread. We know that close contact is probably one of the more risky things that people have. And so in order to do that, you need to isolate people who have been exposed and track, kind of almost follow the footsteps and who they were in contact with and why. And when you're in a closed, confined space, something like a cruise ship, that is extremely difficult. Socially physically, mentally, that is a very difficult thing for some of these people to go through and then to come back home and do it again. But at the same time, this is a long-term thing. You know, our health officials are saying 14 days, some people say longer, some people say shorter. It's still unpredictable and that's what's difficult about it.
0: Marisa Fernandez, reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much.